0: Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I speak with other environmental educators and we share experiences, practice, and perspectives on helping people to reconnect with the natural world. This will be one of two episodes looking at Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park. The Cemetery Park is one of London's magnificent seven cemeteries. It was established after an Act of Parliament allowed privately run cemeteries. It opened to burials in 1841 and was quite popular. However, after about 50 years, the site began to become a bit neglected. In 1966, the site finally stopped being used for burials and was officially closed as a cemetery by Act of Parliament and redeclared a park. The park at that time was owned and managed by the Greater London Council, until 1985 when the GLC was abolished and management of the site passed to the local borough, the Borough of Tower Hamlets. Then in 1990, the Friends of Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park was formed. They work with the council to promote the park, teach about its history and biodiversity. They've run a program of public events, do fundraising, and volunteers with the Friends of the Park Association support a lot of the maintenance work that goes on there. The park is now designated a local nature reserve and a site of metropolitan importance for nature conservation. In 1993, the Soane Centre was opened as part office space and part education centre. It's now run by education charity Setpoint London East, and they offer a range of science workshops which use the park as its classroom. The workshops are offered free to schools in Tower Hamlets and welcomes over 7,000 schoolchildren every year. Today, in addition to the 8,000 schoolchildren and the 24-hour public access, the 27-acre park preserves several grade 2 listed historical monuments and is home to somewhere around 1,000 plant and animal species. In this episode, I'm speaking with two of the folks who run the cemetery park and maintain the balance between biodiversity, historical preservation, and public access. I interviewed Ken and Dim, two of the four full-time staff who look after the cemetery park. Unfortunately though, Dim's audio didn't work out so well, so you'll hear a little bit from him in this episode, but he kindly took the time to speak with me again in more detail about the school programs that he runs at the site, so look out for that in the next episode. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ken and Dim.
1: Hi, my name's Timothy. I'm the Education Manager here at Tahabit Cemetery Park.
2: My name's Kenneth Greenway. I am the Cemetery Park Manager at Tahabit Cemetery Park.
0: First, I asked Ken to introduce himself and tell us a bit about how he got into nature and conservation.
2: For me, it was like most kids. Well, I was the last generation of kids that were kicked out and told to come home at dinner time or when the street lights turned on or when you heard a parent yell. You know, one of those three things, you have to come home. So we were kicked out, I grew up in Romford, and you just see nature when you're a kid, because you're out all day, you know, you're just making fires, making dens, whatever you're doing, and, um, you know, I think all kids have an, an innate interest in the outdoors, but as I got older, it never went, and my, neither of my parents prevented that interest from existing. They weren't able to kind of feed it very much, but they never said, we want you to take over the family business. They were like, yeah, you've got more opportunities than we've ever had, so you follow your heart, you do what you want. And I was lucky to have teachers at primary and secondary school that took me under their wing and developed that interest in nature and wildlife. And so I, I got opportunities um, to do things and then I was able to turn it into a job. And from uh, once I left university, I was a countryside officer down in Kent. But yeah, it's, um, I'm very lucky. I'm, I get paid to play outside every day and tell people about things that creep, Force and Blind and grow. It's nice.
0: Ken and Dim also spoke about Terry Lyle, whose long-term influence on the Cemetery Park and many of the other green spaces in East London have led to the balance of habitat conservation and public access, which really mark out many of the big green spaces in this part of the city.
2: Yeah, a, he, he was, when he came to Tower Hamlets in the early 80s, no. you know, he'd been with forestry in Austra- Australia. and he's uh,
1: in uh,
2: Britain. He grew up in Bournemouth. In Bournemouth yeah, yeah, from Bournemouth. And, but just like nature, like lots of kids did, was, he would just knew a little bit more than most entire hamlets. He was—he described himself back then as the one-eyed king in the land of the blind. He knew something and everyone else knew nothing. He just had one eye open. And so he was able to help uh, support others with their wildlife aspirations, you know, whether it be planting or you know, walks or interpretation or building education spaces, wildlife education spaces in school grounds. And um, he was also the education officer for an organization called the Environment Trust that don't exist anymore. But, um, yeah, he was really good. And he was very much, he very much kind of brought together the ideas of what the cemetery park could be beyond its historic previous use as a cemetery, but also this woodland grew up during its life. So what, what can it be? What, how do we make it an accessible, safe, welcoming space for all? And so, well, let's live with the trees and work amongst them and, and do something that's layered and structured and age diverse and with a mosaic of like conditions. And that will bring people in. And, and uh, that, that attitude has worked very well for the friends, you know, well regarded by the council and people well regard the charity here. And yeah, it was great. He was, and he's, he's won a civic award from the mayor here. His work, the environment. Um, he's, he's won various awards, but oh, he's so regarded.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, for
2: what he's done to kind of inspire people about nature in, in, in a city setting and how it can happen in a city. Mm-hmm. Just because it's a city doesn't mean it can't happen. And I, I often feel that city nature sites, if you took like, we're 31 acres. If you were to compare us to an equivalence base in the countryside. We're probably more diverse yeah, probably. in terms of individual numbers of species. Yeah. We might not be as old, and we might not have some of the more established ancient indicator species. But you can, you can. It, there's just so much in here, um, and you know, I walk around woodlands. I, you know, it's what I do. But I don't see the level of diversity in those places I do here. There isn't the ground flora.
0: Now, for me, one of the strange things about London parks is that many of them are completely fenced around and the local councils will lock them at night to prevent mischief or what's called over here, antisocial behavior. Now, you might think that this would also be the case for Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park, uh, with it being a historic site as well as a nature reserve. But in recent years, this has changed with the addition of gates, which allow pedestrians to go through, but which block vehicle traffic, what are called kissing gates. Ken shared how he and the staff and volunteer team on the site balance allowing this 24 access to the site with the potential concerns about antisocial behaviour.
2: We're very urban, we've got housing estates and and high-rise around us, and there's going to be a new development on our southern side in the next 12 years. And so, yeah, it is down. There's only four full-time staff here and two charities. So there's Dim with Setpoint London East who teach all the kids doing formal-based education. And there's us, the friends, who do the more informal leisure learning stuff and work with the volunteers. So in normal times, we could welcome up to 100 volunteers a week, 3,000 volunteers a year, all engaged in purely practical work for the site, doing all the seasonal weeding, planting, planting, footpath care, installing the furniture, anything that a park needs to be managed. And then there'd be all the interpretation walks, so we'd do about 170 walks and talks a year. Keep the park free of litter, deal with end-social behaviour. 7,000 school kids. 7,000 school kids, Dim gets to see parts. every year, so this building is very quiet the last year. <laughs> Not having all the kids through. Um, and, you know, working with others so that they can enjoy the site. So we've had kind of filming in here. And we've had it being a cinema, outdoor cinema, it's been an amorphous stage for a contemporary circus. More recently we had Mist film his music video, Cemetery Walks here. You know birmingham based, British rapper.
1: Come on man, oh. lay down with
2: the kids. <laughs> <guys>. <laughs> I've met Example over there, I've got a photo of me with Example across the footpath there. Um, but yeah, we've met all kinds of people. David Guetta, Ali Harrison,
1: Bill I'm, Hardy. And probably the most famous, Gandalf.
2: Gandalf, Gandalf the Grey.
1: He lives round
2: the corner from here. Yeah, he uses his space often. So we get, you know, it's it's London's. It's diverse and interesting. Yeah. All kinds of people here, and it, it, even though we're a closed historic cemetery, it doesn't prevent us from being something. Other than that, it can be many things and be a backdrop. There's a way to always use this space to be seen as being respectful, whatever that is, because everyone's interpretation is different. But of its historic use as a cemetery.
0: Has the management of the site
2: affected
0: how people use the site in terms of like increasing or decreasing uh, antisocial behavior, that kind of stuff?
2: So I I think part of that is the the way Dim and I and other staff members here engage with people. We're We're not sitting in the office ignoring everyone who's in the park. We're out there engaging with people. And I think part of it is to create a face for the site. So yes, we've made the site feel safer. Um, it's oh, ivy on trees and made it feel more open, but it's more diverse. But going out and talking to people is the key thing.
1: we um, talk to everyone. They talk to everyone and just chat. Whatever they're doing, you know, hi. <laughs> We're here to ruin your really, really good hi. Yeah,
2: I think that, that method works really well because I think people would come into a space like this, see its maturity and think that it would mean it's uncared for and unmanaged. So they think they can and do things unnoticed and, un- and undisturbed. But by then, we go in, someone will tell us, and we'll go out and chat to them and say, look, you probably don't know, or how you're doing, need help, whatever it is, how we perceive the situation is just checking in with people, and then they're interrupted, no, I'm not going there. Every time I go in there, Ken or Dean just goes and chats to us and it just really messes my day. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm gonna go somewhere else while I am left alone and people just start checking in with me. Because not mean, because there's a lot of loan working with what we do here. So we can't go around being mean to people because we also have to attend meetings outside of here mm-hmm. that might be in a community center on an estate. Well, I live around here. <laughs> yeah, I <live laughs> here. So we can't be walking around, you know, you might be going out and they're like, oh, there's that Tim, there's that Ken who told us to go off out of the cemetery park and then they give us a kick in, you know. so We get the opposite a- now, like, we get completely
1: opposite. I got surrounded years ago getting a Boris bike by a group of boys and I was like, ah, oh, here it goes. And one just all oh, right, <laughs> Yeah.
2: You well, know, they <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're, they're really cheeky and they ask if they can bring the motorbike in because you've you, you kicked them out loads of times. So I can bring a bike in, no. <laughs> I just check in. Just yeah. so owning the space, talking to people, interacting with people. And we didn't push them out. No, just claim really. it. Just start putting your your stamp on the place. Yeah. You know, just showing your your visibility and your presence and people feeling your presence there. Yeah. It's worked really well because I... When I came here in 2002, I was the only member of staff, and so I had to find a way to interact with people that allowed me to achieve the same result. So, um, yeah, you know, it's
1: the ultimate thing.
2: Yeah, so just being, kidding, you know, t- you know, talking to people carefully and gently, and treating everyone with the respect they deserve, even if you're looking at what they're doing and you're like, "You are an absolute nightmare. What the heck are you doing?" I mean, I once called kids setting on fire, setting fire to tra- my bins. And then peeing in them. What I can't get
1: this. I can't get this. Let's put it out. Let's put it out. Boys together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he just, he's just like, he's
2: just looking at you like, what are you doing?
1: Then they they you and they
2: don't know what them. they're doing. They look at you and they're like, then you can see that the moment comes upon them. They've just, they've just done something with no thought. And they're like, oh yeah. Sorry, boss. I'm not your boss. And then, do you want help? Do you yeah, want help? Yeah, so that's do, it. Do, do, do want you want to help? help you, and maybe. then they were all bunking in school doing that. And the next morning I turned up. They all turned up at my door. because I got them to help me sort the bin out. It. On their pee in it. They turned up next day. Oh, come to up do the bins. It's like, you're meant to be in school. <laughs> I can't allow you. While I love it, I can't encourage that behaviour. Because you should be somewhere else. Not here. So, um well, and then... Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting what we see. But it is quite low-level day-to-day because people who get interrupted all the time. you know. How are you doing? It's just real simple, just chatting to people. Treat people as you want to be treated and understand that not everyone's got private space. And for some kids, this is a place they can do stuff where no one in their community is going to see them because they're not using the site. site. They can't see into the site from the road. It is a safe space for them to enjoy being young, doing what young people do. And that is absolutely fine from our point of view, but just keep it tidy and just remember it's a public space. Don't upset anyone because, you know, your kids and your people of colour and other people might have, in you know, they're going to see loud-rowning kids of colour and might have issues with it, um, whereas they might not feel the same if it was a group of white kids. But so it's just... Okay. It depends, I, 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 you know? I mean, yeah. it's it kids, young kids are kids,
1: but if people do have
2: stereotypes, and I think that's what I'm... Aware of in here, yeah. I don't want people being victimized for any, any reason or making people feel uncomfortable around them for any, any more than they might already feel. So it's just like, let's all just chill out and enjoy the space. But the, the graves do chill people out. They might come in rowdy, but it
1: does bring them down. Yeah, we have fun in here. It's, it's, yeah. uh, Is it publicly accessible? 2015? Yes. Yeah. The main,
2: the main gates are locked outside of some uh outside of kind of daylight hours but there are six gates that are never locked these are kissing gates yeah so that people can come through anytime they like and that that's made the park safer actually because when you I, i've been here since 2002 and the park used to all be locked there was never it was all gates that were locked yeah. and that service was still delivered by the council and some days they would forget to open it or forget to lock it But it created a free flow through the site, so motorbikes could just kind of race through and Mm -hmm. race around. But also, you know, when the council did forget to open it, people had put carjacks in the railings to create a space. So as soon as, and so wondering why it was locked. So as soon as we made kissing gates, we were able to seal all the gates. People felt the site was fine and legitimate to use, and, and we didn't have all the trouble. People weren't breaking in to find out why it was locked. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they were like, "Oh, you can go in there. No, Interesting. No, no, no. We're going in then." So people do? who come in here at night are cutting through to go somewhere. They're enjoying the space at night, or are they enjoying the company of others. <laughs> don't leave any litter, and I don't mind. We keep understand. it clean, keep it tidy. Be mindful of others and the space, and fill your boots. That's my dream. yeah, yeah. Live and let live. Don't take plants. Don't take plants. <laughs> <laughs> really bothered by that.
0: Next, I asked Ken about some of the programs put on by the Friends of the Cemetery Park to encourage locals to use the park. He spoke about how foraging for edible plants on the site has been a great way to encourage people into the park. However, foraging in such a popular urban location brings with it its own challenges. In particular, over the last year, with the start of the national lockdown, the park became a lifeline for many of the local residents, some of whom discovered that foraged leaves could also become an additional source of income.
2: Enjoy looking at it and enjoy their part, but not necessarily appreciate that the individual Beauty of everything. They might not see the variety in leaf shape and textures and colors. And so foraging deepens that connection to the natural world because then you start to see the variety. You can then start to enjoy the seasons because something's available some year, something's not. And then, and then, then you want, then you'll want to protect that because you have a direct benefit from it. You're taking food value, you know, and you're experiencing things that people don't do very much, like pickling, dry and preserving, fermenting. They never can really do that anymore. Gone are the days of grandparents and pantries filled with preserved goods. So it, it, it creates a, a connection throughout outdoor space um, that they, they want to save it because they're, they enjoy what they're seeing, they take, they're take learning about something, they're sharing that with their friends and family, and they then share what they're collecting and eating. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that creates a great deal of positive... Environmentalism and kind of saving the world around you and appreciating it in another way. And then there's just the mental and physical well-being benefits of having some independence from shops and some ownership about when and where you get your food from. You've got that seasonal choice and you can play around with recipes and stuff. So I, I think it's really valuable for that. But it, it does, it does attract a certain demographic I of say. people. It, 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 I, I would say it's not, it doesn't reach as far as it could. So we might work with people of different backgrounds who might be a stay-at-home parent, or um, you know, and they want to connect to the outdoors. But plants always a great way to do that. It does bring people together, and if you've got an interpreter there or not, or you just encouraging people to touch and taste things, that it starts a conversation. And because um, everyone's nature references are different, depending on whether you're newly arrived immigrant to the UK or a first generation you know your your points of nature what 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 is familiar to you is different to so someone born in the UK you know everyone has a robin and a blackbird in the UK well you might think they do but somewhere else someone's nature reference might be a desert or mountains and so Rainbow,
1: yeah, yeah and so it's going you
2: know, it's very unfamiliar and also they might have more caution around the natural world you know nature might be something you be more cautious around this dangerous animals or poisonous animals or I mean, treacherous terrain or whatever it might be so it, it helps you know make their new home feel more familiar and build some comfort around the world because we get kids who see worms and think they're snakes you know they've not seen a worm or even heard of a worm and so it is interesting from that perspective so I like what we do because it does
1: you know everyone
2: likes plants you know whether you just enjoy growing flowers in your garden or you enjoy eating, you know there's Everyone does it. That, like Tim said, it creates great conversation with groups. Uh, we all know it's good for us. We all know we should protect it. We all know we should be interested in it. And I think you know, the pandemic has really shone a light on the value of open space to people's well-being because every day the last year, you know, everyone tells us that this place has kept them safe. Every day. Every, okay. every, and still continuing, yeah. For the It's just continuous. If it wasn't for this place, they would have gone bad
1: even like, Michelle.
2: Yeah, was. Michelle does our nature and us a outreach program, our community outreach program. So using nature as a, as a theme to bring communities together. So in Tower Hamlets, we've got yeah. long established communities, newer communities, medium kind of aged communities. And so not everyone knows their neighbors. So the council funded um, a number of organizations under the kind of heading of community cohesion, but to use different themes to bring people together. So we, was successful within the contract to use nature as the theme. And then we based ourselves in primarily two other parks in the borough. So Shandy Park, just off the Mile End Road, and then Swedenborg Gardens near Shadwell off the highway. And, you know, that we were then able to take our knowledge and our skills and our enthusiasm and do that somewhere which felt more comfortable because there wasn't graves and people buried on site. And it was really good. Shandy Park was an instant hit. That was great. Fantastic. Now, we had every success we dreamed of there. People were responsive. Swedenborg Garden took a little bit longer because it had, had social behaviour issues. There was homelessness and drug-taking and prostitution, and littering, drug-dealing. So we had to build the confidence of the community with that space and our role there. And then towards the end, I mean, we kept the programme going outside the funding period. We, we then kind of turned the corner. We just did an event one day and it was inundated with people. So we just kept going, kept going. And some days no one would turn up and other days you'd get a couple. But then, you know, the, the grapevine whispers and people talk and eventually people felt that we were a positive, stable, consistent force there, so to speak, and trusted us that we weren't kind of a fly on the wall type thing, you know, just kind of appear and then disappear. And it's done really well actually. Sweden and the council have got really on board and we've got a partnership of interested community groups and residents and users who all meet regularly and talk about the space. And um, yeah, that's my colleague, Michelle, and she's done a great job kind of building the trust of people and, and plants was a big part of that. Um, but yeah, all kinds. We did back walks, origin tours and planting events like planting bulbs and wildflowers, we built wildflower meadows. for families? Yeah, all free of charge. And so, there is an appetite for it.
0: Ken leads edible plant walks throughout the year. I asked Ken about his perspective on managing picking leaves and flowers, and how he leads his foraging walks.
2: Well, firstly, we, in Tower Hamlets, we have bylaws that prevent any picking in whole or part of its plants within it Anything that's under the council's ownership, for public land. I, I'm not a fan of people not being able to pick. I think when we think of the past, before humans became more focused in towns and cities, we were much more connected to the outdoors. And um, plants were much more of our daily living they would have been food and medicine and all kinds of you know folklore and cosmetics, you know, anything you could imagine people might want to plant for. So um, I, th- I think it's really important for people to still be allowed to do that understand how to do that ethically and morally and within the law. The Wildlife the Countryside Act and various other things kind of do prevent a lot of this stuff happening. But if you, can, if you can educate people and help them do it in a way that allows them to tread carefully and be stewards and ambassadors of the world around them, but also understand that you don't want to go in and tear a place to please because it might not be there next year. So You've got to find somewhere else to go. So kind of, you can kind of do it on those kind of selfish terms with people. Foraging for me is a is a is an engine to share a love of plants. It, it's not my starting point. It's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell people about plants, but people never turned up on botany tours. But they turn up on a plant, they turn up on a foraging tour because we all like eating, we all like sharing food with friends, we all like being flashy, we all like showing off on our, on the gram. And um, you know, it's it's what people want to do. So foraging feeds into uh, People want to show they're living the best life, and they're really kind of trending stuff. I don't know. I mean, it really is.
1: is. Yet last year was like a repetitive nightmare. You're wild garlic. You're wild
2: garlic. So, so so foraging tours are all about helping people understand that to forage is a slow journey. It is the slowest journey, and but it will only move as quick as you're willing to learn. So we get lots of people who turn up for our three four hour foraging tours expecting that by the end of that session, they're going to know what to do. Well, what I am, what I instilled in them is that you don't know anything. If you're starting from a place of, I can just about identify stinging nettles, you've got a long way to go. Stinging nettles is a great place to start. You can do everything with stinging nettles, and the Natural History Museum have produced a stinging nettle cookbook. So everything you want to do, go for it. Start with stinging nettles. And if you miss ID, get a dead nettle, not the end of the world. What, what, what I'm instilling is we need to be ethical and moral. We need to follow the law and, and forage within the confines of the law and permission of the landowner. Then also, I need you to understand botany. I need you to know how to identify a plant. What's the process for botanical ID? What, it, what do botanists do that you also need to do? Because you can't explore recipes until you know what you've got in your hand or that you're about to pick. And also, that eating is not an ID method. <laughs> We do get people going, can I eat it? No, why have you pick something that's poisonous? So, so you know, it's, I, you know, being a big Terry Pratchett fan, I, I, I tend to use something that he used in a Discworld almanac that all fungi are edible, but some are only edible once. Okay. And I, but I changed the word fungi for plants and because everything's edible. You can stick anything in it, you go off and chew it. Um, but it might be the end of you at the end after that experience. So I'm not instilling, I'm not frightening people, but I want people to understand that foraging isn't something you can kind of pick up and throw away. You have to commit to the subject. There's lots of learning, development in your own abilities and appreciation of the world. Because You've not only then got to learn how to ID things, you need to understand the seasons and whether things are available all year. So then foraging is like being on a carousel. You go, it takes a year to turn, and once you've gone past the point, you have to wait again. So it involves preparation and planning and thinking and exploring and mapping, either physically or mentally. It involves it being part of who you are. You, When you become a forager, you immerse yourself in the outdoors. You, want to try, you need to just spend time outside looking, IDing, if you don't know what it is, taking a bit, putting books on it, and then just having an idea of what, your screen space is doing in here and what's available. And then then the fun bit, after you've done made that commitment, that's when the fun comes in. That's when you can start to think about swapping a wild ingredient, ingredient for a shop, shop-bought ingredient. You can start to experiment with pickling, try and preserving, all those kind of things. But you've got... It, and I don't know, I think... I think this is why people just stick with wild garlic. Yeah, I was going to say. just made that. It is, it is a commitment and it takes time. So, we are educating people about that commitment of time and that passion of knowledge and learning. And hopefully, foraging will be your gateway into finding a learning passion.
0: Finally, I asked Ken about which program he felt brings in the most varied audience.
2: The most inclusive events so where we get the widest range of people at my guided back walks. Mm-hmm. People want to use their parks at night and they want to experience an animal they may never have thought of and they get to hear them, bat detectors and a lot of and we do a number of those free every year. We do do them as fundraisers and, but I, we get a real good range of people though, from like kids in push chairs right up to a pension range. So yeah. well, for me personally, that would, that would be, but then I, I'm a bit biased anyway because I love bats. So maybe, maybe it's not a, <laughs> it's not a fair answer.
1: I'm going to say batwolves, whatever. <laughs> For me, like the diversity in the community that comes into the park comes from the schools, and you know, essentially within two years we would have seen every primary school kid in the borough. So, like, we see a lot of kids in that sense, and they. But what I was going to say is actually you know, it's our community fairs and stuff like that. that yeah. actually Brings in varied activities, free festivals, free days that we run are really popular here. Yeah, really yeah. the summer fun day is, um, yeah.
2: is always really popular, yeah. yeah. But I, we've, we've also got to be very mindful that the fact that we're a historic closed cemetery is always going to be a barrier to people, and it, regardless of what we do, and hence why we've got our Nature and Us programme, our community outreach programme, and we've got these other spaces we work in so that we can still give people the same experiences without them feeling... Fearful or whatever feelings they have around the fact that there are 250,000 people buried here. Um, and they, yeah, and we could, that could be a podcast in itself. Yeah. <laughs> Why are people feel fighting in cemeteries. <laughs>
0: um, could you walk me through the, one of these, um, guided bat walks? Like walk me through some of the logistics of it. Like so, what do we do when
2: they first arrive? Yeah, so I guess we, we try and run it during the more sociable sunset time. So in the height of summer, when you've got sunset like 9:30, 10 o'clock, we don't run them. So we do them in May, and we'll pick them up again in August, September, October. So you know, run a booking system, online booking system. People sign up, limited numbers. They turn up. Um, they'll get an introduction from me about bat ecology, and some show and tell items, so I've got a dead bat to show them, I've got bat pictures, um, we talk about, um got bat poo, and we get everyone to do the bat poo test, so they get to crush some bat poo, to so they know the difference between bat poo and m- m- mice poo, or rat poo, so, um, and also just lots of questions. You know, when we got kids, there'll always be a few bold kids, like, stand up next to me. Did you know? Did you know? Or They're really just questions. asking really silly questions, I don't mind, and you can see oh, there's a lot about. of adults like this is an evening walker. I who not think a beer. It's like really doing my buzz. So, <laughs> really massive. And you've got, you've got people who are drinking, like, this will be fun walking around listening. So, But yeah, they get they get they basically get a thorough introduction on bats, break down stereotypes and old wives' tales, ask me questions, see some things, and then I teach them how to use the bat detectors because I've got about 13 that I can dish out amongst the group. So I teach them how to use them and what they're listening for and what they can expect to hear and then we go off and have them, it isn't really a walk, it's a shuffle, you are ambling through, you're not going anywhere very quick, you're walking with scientific instruments in essence, and then um, we're listening until we hear the wet smacks or something else like that, and then everyone gets really excited because they see bats, they get to see them swooping and diving and hunting, they hear the, the clicks and the chirps and the raspberries, and everyone has a world of a time, and I, I think it doesn't matter whether you've whether it's your first time seeing a bat in the wild and hearing them or your 10,000th, I think everyone reacts the same regardless. They're just, well, for me, they're just, they are the true stars of the night sky. They are absolutely brilliant mammals and um, I absolutely love them to bits and people really enjoy them. They really, really do. And I, I don't think they're coming with those expectations. They're coming. It's like, a bat walk. I know nothing about bats. We're going to hear them. Oh, that might be cool. And we get to be in our park at night? And we're with groups that will say. It's very experienced. Yeah. It? You know, so, it's very
1: interactive. Sensory experience. Yeah.
2: They're yeah. coming because it's, they're going to have something
1: to tell others about. So. Well, the difference between our back here and say for the wetness centre is we actually don't have that. So if we see three bags, yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. But it still has a high value. Like we've done back where we haven't seen it. Yeah. Well, the whole process is, People wow. in,
2: yeah, people enjoy the, the anticipation mm-hmm. and the, you know, they might see them and they've, they've got to see the dead bat and touch bat poo and smell it and talk about At bat ecology and bat biology. Sorry, At the Ken show, At the Ken show. I do do my little thing when I'm talking about bats. Um, cause I, I, yeah, I want everyone to love them as much as I do. But I, and we get all—they really do attract a wide variety of people.
0: They're really easy to do. They are super fun, and it doesn't actually matter. Like no. people seem to still have fun even Absolutely. if there's no bats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: they got a big kid. They
0: Yeah, yeah. and you just walk around, and you're chatting with other interested people. Yes. And there's something yeah. about just
2: being around other interested yes. people. exactly, that would exactly really right. But I think it, it does it's, it's on the head. I think
0: that's very much what it is and something again as you mentioned something about using a site at night which yeah. intrigues enough people so that so might not normally go, but then yeah. you see something that's like oh this is a bit unusual I'm going yeah. to try out this
2: unusual exactly. thing and so it would so sound, cool. sound really cool yeah. on your social media feed down on a back walk in a cemetery yeah, you know you yeah. <laughs> like, well, well, oh, oh. can do back walks in London right, on <laughs> Halloween yeah. And yeah, it's oh, it's, oh, it's people love it. It just it creates a buzz, and their their social media followers or whoever's engaged with them, you know, we'll talk to them. That's the name Bucket list, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you get certain sites. Oh yeah, we always yeah. get a few so, I I a, golf. I remember I did a I did a backboard so, specifically for the the London golf meetup group, and they all came fully back to everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> but they bought loads of bat-shaped and bat-themed food to eat on the walk. It was really cool. (laughs) They was really good. Bat cookies. It was really cool. And um, it was a good
0: walk. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Special thanks to Kenneth Greenway and the friends of Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park for taking the time to talk to me for this episode. And if you're ever visiting London and feel the need for an urban nature break uh, from the big city, check out Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park. Chances are you'll run into Ken and Dim, and they'll chat your ear off. As always, let me know if there's a topic you'd like to hear more about, or if you really enjoyed a particular format. I'm still learning and trying out new things, as regular listeners will have undoubtedly discovered by this point, so I'm really keen for any feedback. Send me a message at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com, but you can also get in touch on Twitter at kn underscore podcast, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook as knowingnaturepod.